Welcome to the Sisters on the Front Lines podcast, where we unite with Christ to combat the shame surrounding young women struggling with pornography and share our stories and insights to gather more tools and weapons to fortify our stance on the front lines in the war against pornography. Alrighty, welcome to this next episode of the Sisters on the Front Lines podcast. As always, I am very excited by who I am joined with today. His name is Jason Whiting, and he's a professor at BYU, but I want him to kind of take the reins and Jason, introduce yourself. Who are you? Sure. Nice to be here. As you say, I'm a professor at BYU. I'm currently directing the marriage and family therapy programs here at BYU. So we have a master's and a doctoral program where we train folks to become professional therapists. And I also am a therapist. And so as part of my work as a professor, I train therapists, but I also see people and I do research and publish. I I do teach classes on relationships, but also on addictions and on abuse and unhealthy things that happen in relationships. And so I've done done some writing in that area, written a book and some articles related to things like that, like relationships and abuse, violence, addiction, infidelity, things like that, that are, that are, that are tough topics, but important because they're pretty common. So anyway, that's kind of what I, what I do and where I spend my time. Yeah. Love it. We love the tough, but important topics here. (laughs) It's kind of our jam. Well, sweet. I'm excited to, to get some insights from you. I think we'll we'll talk a lot about kind of couple conflict, couple communication, because I think that's kind of what we want to center our discussion around. So for anyone listening, that will be the main topic, but I'm sure we might we might go on a couple tangents and that's okay. Okay. Well first off, I just wanna start as far as like partners in pornography goes, because honestly this is kind of an untouched subject on this podcast so far. But let's just start, like, what is a healthy way to tell a partner that you struggle with pornography? Yeah, it's a great question. And as, as you know, the, the struggles are really common these days. There's a lot of people who are affected by pornography. It's just so common. It's just so prevalent that a lot of people who are either in relationships or who are going to get in relationships are going to be affected by pornography. And we can talk about some of those stats later, and maybe you've already talked about some of those on the podcast. But but the reality is it's going to be a conversation a lot of people have at some level, whether somebody's struggling in a major way or in a minor way. And that's also another thing I think that's relevant about pornography is that you get the whole spectrum of people who really have never looked and are not looking to those that are looking once in a while and once a year, a couple times a year, once a month, every week, multiple times a week every day, you know, so you, so you have that range of people who it's, it's a huge problem. And then the people, it's an occasional problem. So anyway, as people get into relationships, especially young people, this is a conversation most are going to have at some level. So I'll just start with an example. I was, I was talking to a young man not long ago about this because he, he's a good guy doing good work, you know, graduating from university, looking for jobs, but he's had a struggle with pornography for many years. And he's just now taking it seriously and talking about it, but he's in a relationship. And that's part of the reason he's saying, I've got to get this figured out because my girlfriend doesn't know. And I said to him, there's a big difference in a conversation with her 
if you are saying, I have had this struggle, but I'm really working on it and I'm in a recovery mindset and I've talked to some people. In other words, like I've maybe talked to a professional, I've gone to some groups, I've talked to a church leader. That's a very different conversation than to say, I've never talked to anybody and I've been looking at porn almost, you know, every couple of days, if does that make mm-hmm. sense? So, so for starters, one thing to, one thing to think about when you're in a relationship or getting in a relationship is the importance of addressing this issue in some way. And that's hard. I mean, as you know, it's embarrassing. It's, it's not something that's easy to talk about when you're saying, Hey, I've been looking at pornography once in a while or pretty regularly. But, but I would just say again, to reinforce this idea that reaching out for help makes those conversations a lot easier, a lot better. Because again, for his girlfriend, it's a, it's, it's going to be a much different conversation if she's hearing him say, I've had this struggle, but I'm working on it than for her, than for him to say, I have this raging issue. That's really difficult. So anyway, that's, that's one point. It's, and, and then coming back to your actual question, which is how to have the conversation. Honesty is always the best policy and sensitivity is the best policy to just say, this is where I'm at. And this is something that I'm dealing with. And, and I'll, the reason is because if you, if you downplay, if you minimize, and if you say, well, once in a while, or I've had this thing and but it's long past and I'm not struggling with it now, <clears throat> if that's not true, then when it comes up again, it's going to be this re-traumatizing thing and this betrayal of trust. And and it happens sometimes with things like this, with affairs where somebody partially tells the truth, but then they don't tell the full truth. But then the, then the truth has to kind of keep coming out in degrees. And for somebody who's on the receiving end, they're going to, they're going to struggle with that to be like, wow, you know, I thought you had told me everything and now I'm finding out it wasn't, and now I can't trust you at all. So it's, so it's a trust issue. So, you know, back to that first Mm -hmm. principle, which is just honesty. I love it. Yeah. Agreed. A couple things you talked about, there's kind of, you know, there's a range. Some people are struggling, like maybe viewing it once per month. Some people are viewing it maybe multiple times a day. As far as, cause I know this maybe is like a controversial topic in like the research realm, but how do those correlate and how do you like quantify addiction based on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. The truth is, and, and I wrote an article for the Liahona about a year ago, and I talk about this issue of how we how we can cope with and deal with being in a kind of a lust-filled world. There's just lots mm. of stuff out there that's triggering. And I use the analogy to food. We live in a world where we're bombarded with food and cheap and easy and available non-nutritious food and so a lot of people struggle with food a lot of people struggle with their health in that way it's very similar to this issue of lust and pornography and triggering images so some so there's so for starters it's it's important to just kind of reduce shame and say that's the world we live in and that's a challenge but but the point to your point i say in there most people who who are affected by pornography don't meet the criteria for addiction as it's typically understood in the professional world. Addiction is a pretty significant level of compulsive use where it's affecting somebody's ability to keep a job, stay in a relationship. They're needing more of the same thing, more severe versions of the same thing. They're needing it every day. They are They are becoming sort of 
adapted to it physically to the substance or the habit. And this is one area where chemical addictions are slightly different than just what we call process addictions like pornography. So, and I say that because even President Oaks in an article a few years ago said, we need to distinguish these levels of mm -hmm. pornography use because it's, it's not helpful for somebody to say, I'm just an addict. If they're not fitting that criteria, if they're, you know, if they're going to porn once every few months as a coping mechanism, I'm not saying that's good or that's, there's no problem there, but I'm saying that doesn't really fit addiction. Mm -hmm. And, and there's an interesting thing in research which shows that people who are religious use less pornography, but they feel more addicted to it. Like what we call perceived addiction. Mm. They say I'm addicted to porn, but they might just be looking once in a while, or they might be looking at kind of generally like swimsuits or kind of softer versions of lust. And they feel like they're addicted to porn when what they're dealing with is, you know, some habits that are not great, but it's not a porn addiction in the traditional sense, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. That's really interesting about the people in religion. I loved that. I like that way to put it. Like if it's affecting the ability to function outside, you know, of your day-to-day -day life, like I think that's a pretty good general way to put it. And I also, I, I'll link that, that Oaks general conference talk because that one is so good. Yeah. I'll also link your Leahona article that you mentioned. So anyone that's curious to check either of those out, they'll be linked. Okay, let's see, kind of to flip that first question on its head of what's a healthy way to, to tell a partner you struggle, what is a healthy way to approach after you find out a partner has been struggling with pornography? Like, how do you play that supporting role? Yeah, also important because... Like I said, it's going to be very common. And I will say too, it's not like these are conversations that need to happen as somebody's getting to know one another. It's kind of like a more personal, deeper level conversation that you would have as you are getting more serious. You know, friends might help each other out and they might say, hey, and I've seen this happen with, you know, with people who are like roommates or other things to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And other people might, I'm struggling with, how can we help each other out? But when you're talking about like an intimate relationship or a dating relationship, it's it's probably a later conversation as things are getting more serious it's it's you know people's people's boundaries kind of keep opening up as they continue to get to know each other and trust each other so that's part of it <clears throat> but yes if one person is opening up and being honest and sharing their concerns it's helpful for the other person to be supportive to care about that person and to be careful to not I, I, I'm trying to think of the right word. I want to say overreact, but I don't want to minimize the shock or the challenge that that can be for a partner because it is often mm -hmm. upsetting for a partner. Let's say you have a spouse who, in a marriage that has been going on for 10 or 20 years and suddenly the one person is saying, hey, I've got to tell you I have this struggle. That can be really difficult. And I don't want to minimize that at all because for a lot of people that feels even traumatic and, and we, we talk about betrayal trauma. So I'm a little careful to, to be too prescriptive there with how somebody should receive a, a, a partner's disclosure. <clears throat> but at the same time, what I also see sometimes is people who get very angry and they start issuing ultimatums like, if you ever look again, I'm leaving, or you can never do that, or I'm taking your phone, or, and, and <clears throat> in those situations that often is not helpful either because it tends to ramp up the shame 
And it also tends to increase the likelihood of future deception because if somebody has a lapse or a relapse and they're like, man, my wife said, if I ever tell her, if I ever have a lapse again, she's leaving me. So there's no way I'm telling her. So, Mm -hmm. so it's better to take a team approach and say, you know, I don't like that. This is a struggle for you or I'm sad for you or it's hurtful for me, but how can we, how can we kind of, you know, work on this together and get Mm -hmm. some help? and reach out rather than make it this thing that becomes a battleground because that's the the less you know the least effective situation is when it becomes this place where people are just fighting so it's a challenging issue but it's certainly better when people work on it together and kind of hold hands and say let's figure this out together rather than you know you better figure this out and let me know when you do Totally. Yeah. But have but sorry, but having said that, it doesn't mean it's the partner's responsibility to fix it or yeah. even be or even be the accountability partner or whatever. That is mm-hmm. not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is going to be a relationship thing. So that's all. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I actually love that you mentioned that last part about <clears throat> maybe not being an accountability partner. So actually as far as that goes, like if if it's a team effort between both of the partners and it's just one of the partners that's struggling with it how transparent should you be with like that other partner? Like when is it crossing the boundary of, Oh my gosh, like that's probably going to hurt their feelings if I tell them, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's an important issue to figure out. And that is a question for the couple themselves because people will Mm. be at different places on this. There are certain people who they will say, I want to know how your day is going. I want you to report to me or just give me a check-in and it's helpful for me and my, need to kind of be reassured to know that there are other people who will say it's just upsetting to me to hear that you were tempted by somebody that you work with or that you saw something that bothered you and so i want you to work on that with your sponsor or your bishop or or your your personal work and so there's kind of a a range of the ways that partners are going to deal with that and and i'll mention one other thing with that too which is that sometimes somebody who's been struggling in their process of confession and sharing and trying to overcome this, that's really important. But if they start to just always turn to their partner as the confession person, it it can become what we call a scrupulosity thing, which is this kind of compulsive confession Mm. where one person is just like, oh, I was tempted today. I was tempted at church. I was tempted at work. I was tempted with this. And then the partner is just getting bombarded with all this stuff. And that's often not helpful for the partner and frankly probably not that great for the person who is getting this mode of like obsessively confessing just to get them get themselves to feel better in that moment so again that's probably why there's a balance needed there which is sort of a you know let's check in once a day or check in once a week with just how you're doing but i don't need to know all the details or if you have a relapse I may want to know what happened, but I might not. I might just want to be like, okay, how are you going to get back on track? Mm. So, so, so again, it's like, you don't want the spouse to be put in this position of responsibility for the other's recovery, but, but it often is helpful to at least have an open dialogue about how things are going. Totally. Yeah. I love it. And that, that's a great answer. It, it differs partner to partner. Yeah. I think that's perfect. This is a little bit like farther back, but I didn't want to skip over it a while a while ago when we were talking about like you are the partner in the relationship who's struggling and 
a lot of times people are like, okay, well, now that I'm into a relationship, I've got to get this figured out, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of their quote unquote why, right? Is And I've heard this from a ton of people too, is like, well, I have to quit this because like, like I want to get married someday or I want to, you know? And so I guess I'm curious from your perspective, being like a therapist and researching all of this stuff, how much does the actual why matter when you're quitting pornography? How much does it matter? I think. And I mean, like, like the difference, I guess, that maybe you've seen between people who are struggling with pornography and their reason is, well, I have to quit because I'm getting married this, like this soon, or, like I have to quit to deepen my relationship with Jesus Christ or I have to quit for whatever. Like, what do you see in as far as like results go for those different whys? I guess is a better way to phrase the question. Yeah, that makes sense. And and it is better, of course, for somebody to to get it right and to quit and to do better because that's what they want and that's where their values are. That's that's a better reason than quitting because they're getting married and they have to quit. You know, like they feel this external pressure kind of coming back to my comment earlier about a spouse or his partner who's like, you got to figure this out and you got to stop or I'm leaving you. That's, that's sort of a, I mean, that is a why and it's a reason and it might work, but it's not as effective as somebody who's saying this isn't consistent with who I am and I don't feel good about it. And I've got to get this figured out. And, and that's, that's the case with any kind of change is for somebody, for somebody that really wants it for the right reasons is are, are going to do a better job than somebody who is changing because of external threats or somebody else wants them to change. So that's like in relationships, for example, that's probably something to be aware of is if you're in a dating relationship and the person doesn't want to change. And I've seen this and I've seen, I've talked to people who are coming to me because their bishop made them or their spouse made them. And they're saying, you know, I don't know if I want to change or if I'm ready to change. And I say, well, Let's talk about that. But until you are ready, then it's probably isn't a great use of your time. And, you know, there's people are just at different stages on that spectrum of do I want to change? Am I ready to change? Am I changing? And am I trying to maintain the change? People are all over the place on that. So, yeah, certainly better when it comes from the person for their own reasons. Totally. And as you've worked with people who maybe are just coming into you just because Bishop or a spouse came or like had them have you ever seen a change in okay maybe I actually do want to change this about myself and what sparked that change sure and sometimes you know we talk about that as clinicians helping people to kind of sort through the pros and cons for example what would be the advantages of not changing what are the advantages of changing most people Mm -hmm. who, who are not wanting or ready to change it's not because it feels great to be in a you know, a relationship with pornography. Most people, most people don't feel good about that. I mean, again, this is a, this is a kind of loaded issue. If you go out into the world, you're going to get a lot of different perspectives on pornography. And there are couples or people who say, no, it's no big deal. And it's fine. But for most people of faith, especially in our faith, it doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel consistent with who they are. But if they're still at that ambivalent place, then yes, I think you can have some conversations and you can talk about, you know, what would it be like if you were in this different place with it? What would it be like to not have this as something that keeps coming up into your life? So you can have those kinds of conversations for sure. Hmm. Okay, that's good. Let's see. Okay, 
So on one of the latest episodes, I had Tammy Hill, and she talks about this concept of sexual soil. And it's basically just what were you taught about like sex, about pornography, whatnot, when you were a kid and I guess like maybe a teenager and whatnot. And what are you bringing into the relationship? And so from your perspective, how does quote unquote sexual soil play into how these problems are approached and and how do you deal with that with maybe different sexual soils yeah you would just want to talk to people and understand what their histories are if an example of this would be if someone grows up in a home where they hear messages about pornography like it's a horrible thing and nobody in the church would ever look at that or if they do they're a terrible person and there's not much more conversation than that or if that's the message they've got from young women's classes or young men's or whatever then if they're exposed to or then start to struggle with pornography they're probably going to have a harder time with shame and with getting help because it's going to feel so wrong and secretive and as compared to somebody who maybe has had a more healthy discussion about sexuality and you know let's say somebody's been taught you know these are powerful parts of who we are they're god-given they're good there's things in the world that are going to trigger these things. And if you run into those kinds of things, I would hope that you could come and talk to a parent or to a leader. There's kind of different kinds of messages there. And that's probably going to affect one's one's ability or willingness to come and get help or to be open and honest about it. So, mm-hmm. so that's one aspect of that idea about the kind of messages we get. The other thing I would say too, is I, there's a there tends to be a difference between those who are exposed to pornography younger than those who are older. And that's just physiology. That's the brain. So if I if I were, talk to somebody and they start looking at porn when they're nine, and they're looking at it pretty regularly for their all their teen years, that's a pretty deep groove physiologically that has been, you know, carved into their brain. To their body, just knows that's where I go for a quick fix and for pleasure. It it, it kind of makes the the habit and the the addictive side a little deeper and a little harder as compared to somebody that. Mm-hmm runs into it in college or late high school or something like that. So anyway, history is relevant in those kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's perfect. In your article that you did with the, it was the Liahona, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In your article that you did with the Liahona, it kind of like, you know, the whole title is how to like over, is it overcome a lust filled world? Yes. Overcoming a lust filled world. Yeah. Perfect. And I'm curious, like based a little bit off of what you've kind of said in there, how how do you manage temptations and where is the line of, I guess, like temptation into sin? And yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about that is we live in a world where there's a lot of triggers. There's a lot of temptations. And mm-hmm. one of the things that happens is especially people who have high standards like we do around chastity and morality people feel bad when they're tempted. And I think we have to be careful about that because temptation is just something that happens physically. The issue is not the temptation. The issue is then what you do with the temptation. So in other words, Mm. like if I'm driving on the freeway, I might see a billboard with food on it, like some hamburger and French fries. And I might be tempted, especially if I'm fasting, right? Like I, my body is going to react to that. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't feel guilty that I've had some physical reaction to that. 
But if I'm fasting, then I'm choosing to then move away from that temptation and say, you know, that's, that's just not something I'm going to pursue. But if I dwell on it and I think about it and then I sneak off and I go eat, that's going against my values. And it's similar, I think, with just physical temptation. Somebody might see another person or somebody who, you know, acts friendly to them or flirtatious or sees a picture or a video of somebody that's attractive in some way. Their bodies react to those things because that is some of the deepest and strongest wiring that we have as physical beings. Mm. And, and, and for some people that this is kind of hard or it feels even wrong to hear me say something like this because they think, no, we should have higher standards than that. And I agree. And sometimes people can have, you know, be in a pretty good place to have high standards to just not be affected. But the reality is sometimes those temptations are going to break through and that's just how it goes. And then the question is, what do you do with it? If you start to think about it, if you start to pursue it, and if you start to say, well, maybe I'll look on my phone for something similar, then you're now shifting into a different mode. You're shifting into a pursuit mode. And the body again knows that mode is like really powerful. And mm. if you start doing that, especially for somebody who's struggled with these kind of things, it's hard to get out of once you start getting into that. I'm going after a, you know, a dopamine hit. Right. Uh, so, so in the article, I mentioned this, like the scriptures say Jesus was tempted in all points, but he gave mm. no heed to temptation. So temptation is not the problem. We all get tempted. We all are imperfect. The challenge is just what do you what do you do with those temptations i also you say another quote in that article which is you can you might not be able to keep a bird from landing on your head but you can stop the bird from building a nest there right we just have things happen but when we then embrace and dwell on and pursue sexual material or arousing material that's the problem alma told his son, you know, to go no more after the lusts of your eyes. And that's the issue. You know, you, you might have a lustful thought, but if you start going after it, you're putting yourself in another place. And, and again, I, I'm, I recognize the challenge of that. It's very easy to go after lust in, in our world today. This is one of the most challenging compulsive behaviors because you can go after that kind of temptation in five seconds. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you struggle with alcohol, you're going to have a harder time pursuing that if you're in a recovery mode and if you've set up some boundaries. So anyway, pornography and associated sexual, you know, lustful things. Yeah, it's a challenging world we live in. And so I guess the point of that article is to kind of reduce, reduce the shame around just being tempted or triggered while at the same time saying, let's keep some high standards and do what we can to yes. be careful. Yeah, I love it. And I, I just want to echo that if you are getting tempted, well, let me say when you are getting tempted, yeah. you're not a bad person because of that. Like, I love that you bring in Jesus was tempted. Like Jesus himself was tempted. He was not immune to the temptation. It is just a matter of what do we do with that? And you talked a little bit about, well, one thing that sometimes we do with that is enter the pursuit mode and then just go and, and view pornography. But I guess what would be the alternative to that? Like when you are dealing with temptation, and you're trying to get away from pornography, how do you not view it, but in a way that's not like fear-based, if you know what I mean? Yeah, th this brings up a good topic, which is the idea of being in recovery from pornography addiction or, or compulsive behaviors or however you wanna frame that. And it comes back to something I said earlier, which is the importance of reaching out and 
starting to work on this issue because if you're if you're just dealing with it by yourself and if you haven't been able to get it right by yourself then it's time to reach out that's one of the that's like the first step in a 12-step program which is admitting Mm -hmm. that you are powerless and that you have to be open to help so if a person is reaching out and they're talking to maybe a trusted friend or a parent or a professional or a bishop or they're they're going to go check out a 12-step group that starts to put them in a different mindset of recovery it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get it perfect right away because this is a this is a change in lifestyle but what a recovery mindset would include would be learning better coping mechanisms so for example somebody who has struggled with pretty compulsive pornography use or even occasional pornography use their body has learned oh this is a thing i can go to to escape, to feel better, mm-hmm. and to not think about things for a while. And you need to learn some other things to do to do that. And that might include, you know, healthier versions of escapes, like going for a walk, like reading a book, like reaching out to a friend. And if you start to get into that mode of going to some groups or talking to people, then you shift into this healthier lifestyle, even, you know, where people st- start substituting habits. They, they say, you know, I've had to take up rock climbing or gardening. I had a, I worked with a guy once who had been an alcoholic for many years and his, one of his areas of recovery was to become a gardener. And his house now was just full of plants and trees and shrubs because that's where he was putting his healthy energy now. And he was also Mm -hmm. giving back to that community and he was sponsoring others. And, and I say that because sometimes people who struggle with this, they feel like I just have to stop doing it. I'm just not going to do that again. But stopping or what we would call sobriety isn't recovery. That's just kind of mm-hmm. gritting your teeth and using willpower and saying, I'm just never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. And then they mess up and then they feel bad. Mm-hmm. But you have to shift the whole mindset into this healthier version of connecting with others. And and that takes some work. You know, it's, it's not always the most convenient thing to go to a 12 step group once a week, or maybe more often than that, when you're first getting it figured out or to take up, you know, running or pickleball or some new hobby that you can start to shift into this mindset or to have a, have a few books that are recovery oriented books, if that makes sense. And again, I'm just mentioning a lot of things or, or to have some boundaries on your laptop or your phone, all these kinds of things that people put into place, help them, help them know what to do when they're tempted. Like you asked earlier, like, People who are in a good mindset, they get tempted and they're just like, okay, yeah, there's a temptation to hit me pretty hard. I know that right away I need to go do this thing. I need to journal. I need to call a friend. I need to go take a walk. Those kinds of things. Hmm. Yes. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Maybe it's listen not, to one, there's... Of your, one of your podcasts maybe would be one. Oh, uh, yeah. Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Or just give me a call or an email. I'm always yep. open to that. Yep. Yeah, I think that's perfect. And I, I love that you mentioned like, well, they're not just gonna, it's not just gonna stop. Like, don't expect it to just like stop right there. Like it absolutely is a process. And, and I just love that you mentioned like Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted. So you're not a bad person for being tempted. It's just a matter of learning how to deal with it. And I like firmly believe that that is exactly what we're sent here on earth to do is just learn how to manage ourselves. And, and so I think if you're working on that, you are right in the right place. Okay. Did you want to say something? Sorry. Well, it's just kind of following up with the the idea about Jesus and everybody is tempted. You know, you, when you read in the scriptures, Nephi in 
second Nephi four talks about, you know, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, you know, I'm encompassed mm. about I'm, I'm by these sins that so easily beset me. That's Nephi. You know, he's saying at times I feel like a bad person. I just really struggle with these things that I want to do better with. And Paul in the new Testament says a very similar thing. He says, sometimes I do the thing which I don't want to do. And uh, yeah. then I feel, you know, I'm not the person that I want to be. And, and again, I think we, in, in our church culture, we struggle with that sometimes because it feels like we're giving up or, or we're not being, we're not keeping high enough standards. If we say, Hey, we're all imperfect. We struggle. But I mm -hmm. honestly think we need to have more of those conversations because that is the reality. We are all imperfect our, our you know church people are perfect and ch church leaders are imperfect everybody struggles with just life and temptation and just things here in this fallen world that's just the reality of it yeah it is and i think admitting that like is it may sound like a scary thing off right off the bat but it is like the most freeing thing in the world it's like hey nobody's perfect and we're actually gonna live like that like we are all just God's children sent to the earth to learn and grow. And we may be at different points in our path, but we're, we're just here to learn and support each other. Like, yeah, I, I think we always say like, nobody's perfect, but it's hard to actually live it. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> okay. So before I jump into the last two questions, you mentioned some statistics earlier and you said that you wanted to bring those up. And this whole time I've been like, well, how do I phrase that question? Cause I don't know what <laughs> statistics we're talking about. <laughs> so you take the reins on this as a researcher. I want you to tell me about those certain statistics that you were mentioning. Well, it just comes back to what I said earlier, which is that we live in a pornography saturated world. It is just massive. The industry of pornography is massive and the reach of it is also just incredible. It's everywhere. And, and, and it's, it's not getting better. And so again, we just have to figure out how to live in that world. And here's just a couple of statistics of all Americans, about 60% have watched pornography at some point in their lives and one in four in the last month. That's just all Americans. Mm. But if you break it down by gender, there's some differences. Men are four times more likely than women to report having watched pornography in the last month. So that's about 44% of men in the last month versus 11% of women. That's still a lot of women and certainly it's a lot of men. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it's important to just you know, talk as you've done and recognize this is not just a men's problem. It, it certainly is a men's problem, but it's also a women's problem. And there's a lot of folks. So, I mean, there's some differences yeah. there, some gender differences, but it's really important to address both. And the highest rates are actually among men between the ages of 30 and 50 with about... Hmm. A majority of them, 57% of men between the ages of 30 and 50 having watched in the last month and 42% of them in the last week. Mm. Couple, Just a couple more stats. So just again, differences yeah. in men and women. So women, let's just get a younger sample, 18 and 19 year old men and women. Those that are not looking at all in the last year, that's about a third of men are not looking at all in the last year. And about half of women, 52% are not looking. Still mm. a lot of people. And for those that are looking almost every day, kind of on that other end of the spectrum, that it really is a compulsive issue. About 14% of 18 to 19 year old men are looking about every day. It's a lot. And about 2% of women about every day. So mm. even though there's a pretty big discrepancy in gender, as I said before, that's still just a lot of people who are yeah. accessing and looking at pornography. And yeah. one, one other thing I'll say too, just there's a pretty big gap coming back to the question about relationships and dating. There's a big gap in women and men who are asked, 
is your partner looking at pornography? A lot of women say, no, they're not. But a lot of men are saying, actually, yes, I am. There's a big gap in knowledge mm. there. So to the point of as relationships get more serious, that is a conversation that you're going to want to have because a lot of people are looking that may not that their partner may not know that yet. So anyway, just a few stats kind of reinforcing the idea of that this is a common thing out there, either infrequently or frequently, and it's affecting a lot of people. Totally. Yeah. And I love like, like you mentioned, so this conversation is something that needs to happen. And I mean, I think we've, we've mentioned here, but it doesn't need to be this like confrontational, like, so have you been, you know, like have it, view it as something like, Hey, this is something that has the potential to grow us closer. Like let's work on this together. I think that is so much more helpful of, of a mindset and it's going to keep the dialogue open and it's not going to shut other of you off to each other. Okay. Well then let's, let's hit those last two questions. First, what keeps you on the front lines in the war against pornography? You know, it's important to, I think, do things in our lives that have purpose and that help people be happier. This is a thing that's very common, as we've talked about in the world. It's a thing that's bringing a lot of people down. There's a lot of discouragement around pornography. There's a lot of frustration and even more serious levels of betrayal or even broken marriages and things like that. So I guess the thing that keeps me on the front line is being helpful to get people connected to resources that help them in their recovery. This is an area that I have seen amazing changes in people's lives. And people can and do all the time recover from compulsive or even addictive level pornography use. There are there are a lot of resources, there are groups, there are therapists, there are ecclesiastical leaders, there are good spouses. I know so many people who have gotten into recovery, people who are in great positions of church leadership or family members who have left that in their past and are now in a really good place. And so it's a it's a challenge and it's a it's a it's a problem for a lot of people, but it's also an area that people can heal from and find peace. So that's really rewarding to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's wonderful. Very last question. What would you say to a young girl who's struggling with pornography right now? I would say you're not alone and it's time to reach out and find some people who can be helpful and can help you in this struggle because it is, it's a common and difficult struggle and there's a lot of shame and embarrassment around it. But one thing I, you will see when you reach out is that people are merciful, people understand. It's one of the great things about going to groups, for example, and there are groups for you know, women's support groups, is that you're in there with a group of like-minded friends and sisters who say, hey, I've been exactly where you're at and we love you and we understand where you're going, what you're going through. And you, you also can get into a better place with this. You can find help, you know, through, through people that care about you. You know, the thing you're doing, Maddie, with this podcast is another piece in this bigger puzzle of just helping people to find healing. And so that's what I would say to her is that you can find healing. I mean, it, it'll take some work and some, some humility and some growth, but ultimately you're going to be at a better place. And it's inspiring to see people who are in recovery from these things. It's some, some of the most impressive people I've been around. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And just connection. It really does help. We say it all the time, but it really does help. And if you don't have anyone that's close to you to connect with, like 
I'm dead serious. I say this all the time. Send me an email. Send me an Instagram message. It's not weird. Like, <laughs> it's great. That is like, like you said, it's very just rewarding and it's, it's cool to see these awesome people. Well, sweet. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Jason. I really appreciate it. I think that there were some amazing insights shared and I'm excited for this episode to come out. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Maddie. You're doing great work and keep it up. Thank you. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you have a story to share, please reach out to me on Instagram at Sisters on the Frontlines or via email at Sisters on the Frontlines at gmail.com. Please remember, you are not alone. There is healing available and connect, connect, connect. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and give the podcast a rating on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify so that we can reach more young women, parents, and leaders. And until next episode, keep up the good fight on the front lines.